Part 1, Chapter 5, Section 1 of Chance by Joseph Conrad. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Chance, Part 1, Chapter 5, The Tea Party, Section 1. Amiable personality, I observed, seeing fine on the point of falling into a brown study. But I could not help adding with meaning. He hadn't the gift of prophecy, though. Fine got up suddenly with a muttered, No, evidently not. He was gloomy, hesitating. I supposed that he would not wish to play chess that afternoon. This would dispense me from leaving my rooms on a day much too fine to be wasted in walking exercise. And I was disappointed when, picking up his cap, he intimated to me his hope of seeing me at the cottage about four o'clock, as usual. It wouldn't be as usual. I put a particular stress on that remark. He admitted, after a short reflection, that it would not be. No, not as usual. In fact, it was his wife who hoped rather for my presence. She had formed a very favourable impression of my practical sagacity. This was the first I ever heard of it. I had never suspected that Mrs. Fine had taken the trouble to distinguish in me the signs of sagacity or folly. The few words we had exchanged last night in the excitement, or the bother, of the girl's disappearance were the first moderately significant words which had ever passed between us. I had felt myself always to be, in Mrs. Fine's view, her husband's chess-player and nothing else, a convenience, almost an implement. "'I am highly flattered,' I said. "'I have always heard that there are no limits to feminine intuition, and now I am half inclined to believe it is so.' But still, I fail to see in what way my sagacity, practical or otherwise, can be of any service to Mrs. Fine. One man's sagacity is very much like any other man's sagacity. And with you at hand? Fine, manifestly not attending to what I was saying, directed straight at me his worried, solemn eyes and struck in, Yes, yes, very likely. But you will come, won't you? I had made up my mind that no fine of either sex would make me walk three miles, there and back to their cottage, on this fine day. If the fines had been an average sociable couple one knows only because leisure must be got through somehow, I would have made short work of that special invitation. But they were not that. Their undeniable humanity had to be acknowledged. At the same time, I wanted to have my own way. So I proposed that I should be allowed the pleasure of offering them a cup of tea at my rooms. A short reflective pause, and Fine accepted eagerly in his own and his wife's name. A moment after I heard the click of the gate latch, and then, in an ecstasy of barking from his demonstrative dog, his serious head went past my window on the other side of the hedge, its troubled gaze fixed forward, and the mind inside obviously employed in earnest speculation of an intricate nature. One, at least, of his wife's girlfriends had become more than a mere shadow for him. I surmised, however, that it was not of the girlfriend, but of his wife, that Fine was thinking. He was an excellent husband. I prepared myself for the afternoon's hospitalities, calling in the farmer's wife and reviewing with her the resources of the house and the village. She was a helpful woman, but the resources of my sagacity I did not review. Except in the gross material sense of the afternoon tea, I made no preparations for Mrs. Fine. It was impossible for me to make any such preparations. I could not tell what sort of sustenance she would look for from my sagacity. And as to taking stock of the wares of my mind, no one, I imagine, is anxious to do that sort of thing if it can be avoided. 
A vaguely grandiose state of mental self-confidence is much too agreeable to be disturbed recklessly by such a delicate investigation. Perhaps if I had had a helpful woman at my elbow, a dear, flattering, acute, devoted woman. There are in life moments when one positively regrets not being married. No, I don't exaggerate. I have said, moments, not years or even days, moments. The farmer's wife obviously could not be asked to assist. She could not have been expected to possess the necessary insight, and I doubt whether she would have known how to be flattering enough. She was being helpful in her own way, with an extraordinary black bonnet on her head, a good mile off by that time, trying to discover in the village shops a piece of edible cake. The pluck of women. The optimism of the dear creatures. And she managed to find something which looked edible. That's all I know, as I had no opportunity to observe the more intimate effects of that comestible. I myself never eat cake, and Mrs. Fine, when she arrived punctually, brought with her no appetite for cake. She had no appetite for anything, but she had a thirst, the sign of deep, of tormenting emotion. Yes, it was emotion, not the brilliant sunshine, more brilliant than warm, as is the way of our discreet, self-repressed, distinguished, insular sun, which would not turn a real lady scarlet, not on any account. Mrs. Fine looked even cool. She wore a white skirt and coat. A white hat with a large brim reposed on her smoothly arranged hair. The coat was cut something like an army mess jacket, and the style suited her. I dare say there are many youthful subalterns, and not the worst-looking, too, who resemble Mrs. Fine in the type of face, in the sunburnt complexion, down to that something alert in bearing. But not many would have had that aspect, breathing a readiness to assume any responsibility under heaven. This is the sort of courage which ripens late in life, and of course Mrs. Fine was of mature years, for all her unwrinkled face. She looked round the room, told me positively that I was very comfortable there, to which I assented, humbly, acknowledging my undeserved good fortune. Why undeserved, she wanted to know. I engaged these rooms by letter, without asking any questions. It might have been an abominable hole, I explained to her. I always do things like that. I don't like to be bothered. This is no great proof of sagacity, is it? Sagacious people, I believe, like to exercise that faculty. I have heard that they can't even help showing it in the veriest trifles. It must be very delightful, but I know nothing of it. I think that I have no sagacity, no practical sagacity. Fine made an inarticulate bass murmur of protest. I asked after the children, whom I had not seen yet since my return from town. They had been very well. They were always well. Both Fine and Mrs. Fine spoke of the rude health of their children as if it were a result of moral excellence, in a peculiar tone which seemed to imply some contempt for people whose children were liable to be unwell at times. One almost felt inclined to apologise for the inquiry. And this annoyed me, unreasonably, I admit, because the assumption of superior merit is not a very exceptional weakness. Anxious to make myself disagreeable by way of retaliation, I observed in accents of interested civility that the dear girls must have been wondering at the sudden disappearance of their mother's young friend. Had they been putting any awkward questions about Miss Smith? Wasn't it as Miss Smith that Mr. Barrel had been introduced to me? Mrs. Fine, staring fixedly, but also colouring deeper under her tan, told me that the children had never liked Flora very much. She hadn't the high spirit which endear grown-ups to healthy children, Mrs. Fine explained unflinchingly. Flora had been staying at the cottage several times before. 
Mrs. Fine assured me that she often found it very difficult to have her in the house. "'But what else could we do?' she exclaimed. That little cry of distress, quite genuine in its inexpressiveness, altered my feeling towards Mrs. Fine. It would have been so easy to have done nothing and to have thought no more about it. My liking for her began while she was trying to tell me of the night she spent by the girl's bedside, the night before her departure with her unprepossessing relative. That Mrs. Fine found means to comfort the child, I doubt very much. She had not the genius for the task of undoing that which the hate of an infuriated woman had planned so well. You will tell me, perhaps, that children's impressions are not durable. That's true enough. But here, child, is only a manner of speaking. The girl was within a few days of her sixteenth birthday. She was old enough to be matured by the shock. The very effort she had to make in conveying the impression to Mrs. Fine, in remembering the details, in finding adequate words, or any words at all, was in itself a terribly enlightening and ageing process. She had talked a long time, uninterrupted by Mrs. Fine, childlike enough in her wonder and pain, pausing now and then to interject the pitiful query, It was cruel of her. Wasn't it cruel, Mrs. Fine? For Charlie, she found excuses. He, at any rate, had not said anything while he had looked very gloomy and miserable. He couldn't have taken part against his aunt, could he? But after all, he did, when she called upon him, take that cruel woman away. He had dragged her out by the arm. She had seen that plainly. She remembered it. That was it. The woman was mad. Oh, Mrs. Fine, don't tell me she wasn't mad. If you had only seen her face. But Mrs. Fine was unflinching in her idea that as much truth as could be told was due in the way of kindness to the girl, whose fate she feared would be to live exposed to the hardest realities of unprivileged existences. She explained to her that there were in the world evil-minded, selfish people, unscrupulous people. These two persons had been after her father's money. The best thing she could do was to forget all about them. After Papa's money? I don't understand, poor Flora de Barrel had murmured, and lay still as if trying to think it out in the silence and shadows of the room where only a nightlight was burning. Then she had a long shivering fit, while holding tight the hand of Mrs. Fine, whose patient immobility by the bedside of that brutally murdered childhood did infinite honour to her humanity. That vigil must have been the more trying, because I could see very well that at no time did she think the victim particularly charming or sympathetic. It was a manifestation of pure compassion, of compassion in itself, so to speak, not many women would have been capable of displaying with that unflinching steadiness. The shivering fit over, the girl's next words in an outburst of sobs were, Oh, Mrs. Fine, am I really such a horrid thing as she has made me out to be? No, no, protested Mrs. Fine, it is your former governess who is horrid and odious. She is a vile woman. I cannot tell you that she was mad, but I think she must have been beside herself with rage and full of evil thoughts. You must try not to think of these abominations, my dear child. They were not fit for anyone to think of much, Mrs. Fine commented to me in a curt, positive tone. All that had been very trying. The girl was like a creature, struggling under a net. But how can I forget, she called my father a cheat and a swindler. Do tell me, Mrs. Fine, that it isn't true. It can't be true. How can it be true? 
She sat up in bed with a sudden wild motion, as if to jump out and flee away from the sound of the words which had just passed her own lips. Mrs. Fine restrained her, soothed her, induced her at last to lay her head on her pillow again, assuring her all the time that nothing this woman had had the cruelty to say deserved to be taken to heart. The girl, exhausted, cried quietly for a time. It may be she had noticed something evasive in Mrs. Fine's assurances. After a while, without stirring, she whispered brokenly, "'That awful woman told me that all the world would call Papa these awful names. Is it possible? Is it possible?' Mrs. Fine kept silent. "'Do say something to me, Mrs. Fine,' the daughter of de Barrel insisted in the same feeble whisper. Again Mrs. Fine assured me that it had been very trying, terribly trying. "'Yes, thanks, I will.' She leant back in the chair with folded arms while I poured another cup of tea for her, and Fine went out to pacify the dog, which, tied up under the porch, had become suddenly very indignant at somebody having the audacity to walk along the lane. Mrs. Fine stirred her tea for a long time, drank a little, put the cup down, and said with that air of accepting all the consequences, "'Silence would have been unfair. I don't think it would have been kind, either.' I told her that she must be prepared for the world passing a very severe judgment on her father. "'Wasn't it admirable?' cried Marlowe, interrupting his narrative. "'Admirable!' And as I looked dubiously at this unexpected enthusiasm, he started justifying it after his own manner. "'I say admirable because it was so characteristic. It was perfect. Nothing short of genius could have found better. And this was nature.' as they say of an artist's work, this was a perfect fine. Compassion, judiciousness, something correctly measured, none of your dishevelled sentiment. And right! You must confess that nothing could have been more right. I had a mind to shout, Brava! Brava! But I did not do that. I took a piece of cake and went out to bribe the fine dog into some sort of self-control. His sharp, comical yapping was unbearable, like stabs through one's brain, and Fine's deeply modulated remonstrances abashed the vivacious animal no more than the deep, patient murmur of the sea abashes a nigger minstrel on a popular beach. Fine was beginning to swear at him in low, sepulchral tones when I appeared. The dog became at once wildly demonstrative, half strangling himself in his collar, his eyes and tongue hanging out in the excess of his incomprehensible affection for me. This was before he caught sight of the cake in my hand. A series of vertical springs high up in the air followed, and then, when he got the cake, he instantly lost his interest in everything else. Fine was slightly vexed with me. As kind a master as any dog could wish to have, he yet did not approve of cake being given to dogs. The fine dog was supposed to lead a Spartan existence on a diet of repulsive biscuits with an occasional dry, hygienic bone thrown in. Fine looked down gloomily at the appeased animal. I, too, looked at that fool dog, and you know how one's memory gets suddenly stimulated. I was reminded visually, with an almost painful distinctness, of the ghostly white face of the girl I saw last accompanied by that dog, deserted by that dog. I almost heard her distressed voice, as if on the verge of resentful tears, calling to the dog, the unsympathetic dog. Perhaps she had not the power of evoking sympathy, that personal gift of direct appeal to the feelings. I said to Fine, distrusting the supine attitude of the dog, Why don't you let him come inside? 
Oh, dear, no. He couldn't think of it. I might indeed have saved my breath. I knew it was one of the fine rules of life, part of their solemnity and responsibility, one of those things that were part of their unassertive but ever-present superiority, that their dog must not be allowed in. It was most improper to intrude the dog into the houses of the people they were calling on, if it were only a careless bachelor in farmhouse lodgings and a personal friend of the dog. It was out of the question but they would let him bark one's sanity away outside one's window. They were strangely consistent in their lack of imaginative sympathy. I didn't insist, but simply led the way back to the parlour, hoping that no wayfarer would happen along the lane for the next hour or so to disturb the dog's composure. Mrs Fine, seated immovable before the table, charged with plates, cups, jugs, a cold teapot, crumbs and the general litter of the entertainment, turned her head towards us. You see, Mr. Marlowe, she said in an unexpectedly confidential tone, they are so utterly unsuited for each other. At the moment I did not know how to apply this remark. I thought at first of Fine and the dog. Then I adjusted it to the matter in hand, which was neither more nor less than an elopement. Yes, by Jove, it was something very much like an elopement, with certain unusual characteristics of its own which made it, in a sense, equivocal. With amused wonder, I remembered that my sagacity was requisitioned in such a connection. How unexpected! But we never know what tests our gifts may be put to. Sagacity dictated caution, first of all. I believed caution to be the first duty of sagacity. Fine sat down, as if preparing himself to witness a joust, I thought. "'Do you think so, Mrs. Fine?' I said, sagaciously. "'Of course, you are in a position—' I was continuing with caution when she struck out vivaciously for immediate assent. Obviously, clearly, you yourself must admit. But, Mrs. Fine, I remonstrated, you forget that I don't know your brother. This argument, which was not only sagacious but true, overwhelmingly true, unanswerably true, seemed to surprise her. I wondered why. I did not know enough of her brother for the remotest guess at what he might be like. I had never set eyes on the man. I didn't know him so completely that, by contrast, I seemed to have known Mr. Barrell, whom I had seen twice, altogether about sixty minutes, and with whom I had exchanged about sixty words, from the cradle, so to speak. And perhaps, I thought, looking down at Mrs. Fine, I had remained standing, perhaps she thinks this ought to be enough for a sagacious ascend. She kept silent, and I, looking at her with polite expectation, went on addressing her mentally in a mood of familiar approval which would have astonished her had it been audible. You, my dear, at any rate, are a sincere woman. I call a woman sincere, Marlowe began again, after giving me a cigar and lighting one himself. I call a woman sincere when she volunteers a statement resembling remotely in form what she really would like to say, what she really thinks ought to be said if it were not for the necessity to spare the stupid sensitiveness of men. The women's rougher, simpler, more upright judgment embraces the whole truth which their tact, their mistrust of masculine idealism ever prevents them from speaking in its entirety. And their tact is unerring. We could not stand women speaking the truth. We could not bear it. It would cause infinite misery and bring about most awful disturbances in this rather mediocre but still idealistic fool's paradise in which each of us lives his own little life the unit in the great sum of existence. And they know it. They are merciful. 
This generalization does not apply exactly to Mrs. Fine's outburst of sincerity in a matter in which neither my affection nor my vanity were engaged. That's why, maybe, she ventured so far. For a woman, she chose to be as open as the day with me. There was not only the form, but also the whole substance of her thought in what she said. She believed she could risk it. She had reasoned somewhat in this way. There's a man possessing a certain amount of sagacity. Marlowe paused with a whimsical look at me. The last few words he had spoken with a cigar in his teeth. He took it out now by an ample movement of his arm and blew a thin cloud. You smile? It would have been more kind to spare my blushes. But, as a matter of fact, I need not blush. This is not vanity, it is analysis. Well, let sagacity stand. But we must also note what sagacity in this connection stands for. When you see this, you shall see also that there was nothing in it to alarm my modesty. I don't think Mrs. Fine credited me with the possession of wisdom tempered by common sense. And had I had the wisdom of the seven sages of antiquity, she would not have been moved to confidence or admiration. The secret scorn of women for the capacity to consider judiciously and to express profoundly a meditated conclusion is unbounded. They have no use for these lofty exercises, which they look upon as a sort of purely masculine game. Game meaning a respectable occupation devised to kill time in this man-arranged life which must be got through somehow. What women's acuteness really respects are the inept ideas and the sheep-like impulses by which our actions and opinions are determined in matters of real importance. For if women are not rational, they are indeed acute. Even Mrs. Fine was acute. The good woman was making up to her husband's chess player simply because she had centred in him that small portion of femininity, that drop of superior essence of which I am myself aware, which, I gratefully acknowledge, has saved me from one or two misadventures in my life, either ridiculous or lamentable, I am not very certain which. It matters very little. Anyhow, misadventures. Observe that I say femininity a privilege, not feminism, an attitude. I am not a feminist. It was fine who on certain solemn grounds had adopted that mental attitude, but it was enough to glance at him sitting on one side to see that he was purely masculine to his fingertips, masculine, solidly, densely, amusingly, hopelessly. I did glance at him. You don't get your sagacity recognised by a man's wife without feeling the propriety and even the need to glance at the man now and again. So I glanced at him, very masculine. So much so that hopelessly was not the last word for it. He was helpless. He was bound and delivered by it. And if by the obscure promptings of my composite temperament I beheld him with malicious amusement, yet being in fact by definition and especially from profound conviction a man, I could not help sympathising with him largely. Seeing him thus disarmed, so completely captive by the very nature of things, I was moved to speak to him kindly. Well, and what do you think of it? I don't know. How's one to tell? But I say that the thing is done now and there's an end of it said the masculine creature as bluntly as his innate solemnity permitted. Mrs. Fine moved a little in her chair. I turned to her and remarked gently that this was a charge, a criticism, which was often made. Some people always ask, what could he see in her? Others wonder what she could have seen in him. Expressions of unsuitability. 
she said with all the emphasis of her quietly folded arms. I know perfectly well what Flora has seen in my brother. I bowed my head to the gust, but pursued my point. And then the marriage in most cases turns out no worse than the average, to say the least of it. Mrs. Fine was disappointed by the optimistic turn of my sagacity. She rested her eyes on my face, as though in doubt whether I had enough femininity in my composition to understand the case. I waited for her to speak. She seemed to be asking herself, Is it, after all, worthwhile to talk to that man? You understand how provoking this was. I looked in my mind for something appallingly stupid to say, with the object of distressing and teasing Mrs. Fine. It is humiliating to confess a failure. One would think that a man of average intelligence could command stupidity at will, but it isn't so. I suppose it's a special gift, or else the difficulty consists in being relevant. Discovering that I could find no really telling stupidity, I turned to the next best thing, a platitude. I advanced in a common-sense tone that, surely, in the matter of marriage, a man had only himself to please. Mrs. Fine received this without the flutter of an eyelid. Fine's masculine breast, as might have been expected, was pierced by that old regulation shaft. He grunted most feelingly. I turned to him with false simplicity. Don't you agree with me? The very thing I've been telling my wife, he exclaimed in his extra manly bass. We have been discussing. A discussion in the fine menage. How portentous. Perhaps the very first difference they had ever had. Mrs. Fine unflinching and ready for any responsibility, Fine solemn and shrinking, the children in bed upstairs and outside the dark fields, the shadowy contours of the land on the starry background of the universe, with the crude light of the open window like a beacon for the truant who would never come back now, a truant no longer but a downright fugitive, yet a fugitive carrying off spoils. It was the flight of a raider or a traitor. This affair of the purloined brother, as I had named it to myself, had a very puzzling physiognomy. The girl must have been desperate, I thought, hearing the grave voice of Fine well enough, but catching the sense of his words not at all, except the very last words, which were, Of course, it's extremely distressing. I looked at him inquisitively. What was distressing him? The purloining of the son of the poet-tyrant by the daughter of the financier-convict? or only, if I may so say, the wind of their flight disturbing the solemn placidity of the fine's domestic atmosphere. My incertitude did not last long, for he added, Mrs. Vine urges me to go to London at once. One could guess at, almost see, his profound distaste for the journey, his distress at a difference of feeling with his wife. With his serious view of the sublunary comedy, Fine suffered from not being able to agree solemnly with her sentiment, as he was accustomed to do, in recognition of having had his way in one supreme instance, when he made her elope with him, the most momentous step imaginable in a young lady's life. He had been really trying to acknowledge it by taking the rightness of her feeling for granted on every other occasion. It had become a sort of habit at last and it is never pleasant to break a habit. The man was deeply troubled. I said, really, to go to London? He looked dumbly into my eyes. It was pathetic and funny. And you, of course, feel it would be useless, I pursued. He evidently felt that, though he said nothing. He only went on blinking at me with a solemn and comical slowness. 
Unless it be to carry there the family's blessing, I went on, indulging my chaffing humour steadily in a rather sneaking fashion, for I dared not look at Mrs. Fine to my right. No sound or movement came from that direction. You think, very naturally, that to match mere good sound reasons against the passionate conclusions of love is a waste of intellect bordering on the absurd. He looked surprised as if I had discovered something very clever. He, dear man, had thought of nothing at all. He simply knew that he did not want to go to London on that mission. Mere masculine delicacy. In a moment he became enthusiastic. Yes, yes, exactly. A man in love. You hear, my dear? Here you have an independent opinion. Can anything be more hopeless, I insisted to the fascinated little fine, than to pit reason against love? I must confess, however, that in this case, when I think of that poor girl's sharp chin, I wonder if... My levity was too much for Mrs. Fine. Still leaning back in her chair, she exclaimed, Mr. Marlowe! End of Part 1, Chapter 5, Section 1